Now, while some of you may be hearing a message from Job for the first time, there are others among us this morning who've been here every step of the way. Some of you have heard every single sermon that has been delivered this year on from the book of Job. And if that describes you, you have waited a very long time for this point in the story. By way of review, you will recall that Job has endured unimaginable loss. All of Job's children are dead. Seven sons and three daughters killed in a single incident. Job's wealth has been confiscated. Most of his servants have been killed, and even his own health has been compromised. Perhaps you will recall the miserable scene that was described for us in Job chapter 2. You have Job having lost everything. As a sign of his mourning, he tears his clothes and he shaves his head. And we are told that he is sitting on the ground in a pile of ashes. He's covered with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And we're told he takes a broken piece of pottery and he is scratching his itching sores. Job is soon joined by three friends And I use the word and category friend loosely. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But ultimately they only add to Job's misery. Job quite naturally wants answers. Job wants to know what has he done to deserve such pain and suffering. And so what you have is much of the book is a poetic cycle of conversations where one of Job's friends speaks and then Job replies and then another friend and Job replies and so forth. And there is this cycle of conversation where Job continues to ask why and his companions give their theories as an answer to why. You could summarize the responses of Job's companions by saying this, Job's companions believe Job has done something to deserve this. Now they don't know what it is. They imagine it must be some secret sin, something they haven't been able to observe themselves. But you could summarize the theories of his friends by saying they felt Job must have done something or his children must have done something to deserve this. Now that worldview is not unlike what many people hold to in our day. The worldview that you will see and hear in our day goes something like this. We expect that good things happen to good people. And bad things only happen to bad people. And the easiest way to figure out to what degree you hold that worldview is related to your level of surprise when you suffer. 
If you are surprised by pain in your life, if you are shocked that you are in the middle of difficult circumstances, it may be because you are holding to this worldview. Good things only happen to good people, and bad things only happen to bad people. Well, the Eastern religions teach this. Probably the most popular term from the Eastern religions that we have in our day is the term karma. Karma is the belief that the universe meets out judgment according to the good or evil that a person does. And it's amazing to me how popular that worldview or that sense that you're going to get what's coming to you. That becomes the prevailing worldview that we're up against. And it's the prevailing worldview that Job was up against. Job's friends thought that's the way God operates. If you're good, God's going to bless you and make you prosperous. And if you're bad, God's going to punish you and discipline you. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did not have a category to explain how it would be possible for a person of integrity to suffer in the manner that Job did. They, they looked at Job and they had no category to explain if he is righteous, if he is morally upright, if he is blameless, we don't know how to explain what has happened to him. And so what Job's friends do, again, is, is they imagine it must be a secret sin. What we see from Job on the outside must not match what's going on on the inside. It must be some secret sin that has caused God to punish Job in this way. You won't be surprised that in chapter 16 of the book, Job calls his companions miserable comforters. Uh, I'm proud of Job for not laying down at the awful theories brought forward by his friends. He says, you guys are a bunch of miserable comforters. You've come to make me feel better, but you've really only made me feel worse. You're miserable. And then in chapter 31, using courtroom language, using language suitable for a lawyer, Job challenges God to appear. He summons God to appear and to give an account for himself. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the audacity of summoning God and demanding that he appear before you? Summoning God and demanding that he give you answers and account for himself. This definitely falls into the category of be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for when communicating with God. Because in chapter 38, for the next four chapters, God replies to Job. And did you know this is the longest consecutive speech given by God in the entire Old Testament. Now, if you wanted to know what someone was like, what would you do? You would listen to what they have to say. So if you want to get to know God, you would listen to Him. Well, the longest speech He gives in the Old Testament is right here in Job. 
Beginning in chapter 38, spanning the next four chapters, God tells us a lot about himself, what he's capable of, what he's done, what he continues to do. In the New Testament, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is what? It's Jesus' longest recorded speech in the New Testament. And that's significant. If I said, tell me one of the most you know, substantial parts of the Gospels, you would say, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, here you have the counterpart in the Old Testament in terms of length. Job 38 through Job 41. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you homework, first of all. Because if I preach through four chapters, we're going to get out of this church on Tuesday. And and I know you may have some things you want to do later today. So I'm going to highlight some of chapters 38 to 41. But here's what I want you to do for your homework. I want you to read those four chapters. You've got seven days. Take the time to read those four chapters of Scripture, Job 38 through 41. But I want to highlight, and these are some of the personal highlights. These are some of the things that get my attention. Because remember the context. Job has said, you know, God, you need to show up. You need to tell me, you know, what right you have to do these things. You need to give an account for yourself. And so these are the things that God says back to Job. Verse 4 and 5. Where were you, Job? When I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the earth's measurements? Surely you know. Verse 11. Job, have you ever said to the sea, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your prayed waves be stayed. Verse 12. Now this, I love this one. Have you ever commanded the morning? Job, have you ever commanded the morning have, since your days began? Have you ever caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pilates or loose the cords of Orion? Job, are are you in control of the stars and the cosmos and the movement of things beyond the earth and in the heavens? Do you organize the solar system? Chapter 39. God names a variety of species from the animal kingdom. And he asks Job what influence he has had on their origin, on their behavior, what What provision they've given to these animals. God's reply to Job is substantial. And and God being God, he's not obligated to show up just because Job summoned him. Doesn't mean that God is obligated to show up. God being God did not have to say anything to Job in response. But the fact that God does show up, the fact that God does speak in such a detailed manner, in my mind is a very gracious condescension that God makes. God being God doesn't have to show up, but He does. 
God being God doesn't have to give an explanation for himself, but he graciously condescends and speaks to Job. Now, given the length of God's reply, four chapters, given the length of God's reply, don't you think it's striking that God in nowhere does he directly answer Job's question? You could summarize Job's question by saying, why? Why has this happened? What did I do? How did this come to pass? Four chapters and God doesn't deal with that. He doesn't answer the question, the heart of the question that Job wants. God doesn't deal with that. What does God do? Instead of revealing to Job an answer, God reveals to Job himself. And this is huge. Because I'm guessing there are people among us today who've asked God for an answer. I'm guessing that there are people here today who've lifted up their voices to God and said, Why? What did I do? Why has this happened to me? And if you've prayed that prayer, there's a really good chance that you did not get an answer to the question that you asked. But there's a really good chance that God showed up. That God revealed Himself to you in your pain. So instead of answering why, God answers with whom. And what we learn from this is that we all have concerns, we all have worries, we all have things that keep us awake at night. And what we learn from this book is that our deepest concerns are satisfied in the experience of God's presence and not in possessing explanations to our problems. I'm one of those people, I want answers, I want explanations. I want you to show me the math of how we get from one place to the answer. But as a preacher, as someone who studies the Word, as someone who's engaged in pastoral ministry for almost 20 years, I want you to know that God doesn't often tell you why. But He most certainly always shows up and reveals Himself. Now, I've been critical of Job in particular with how he summoned God in chapter 31. But I commend Job for the humility expressed in his reply to God in chapter 40, verse 4 and 5. I'd like to think that if I were confronted uh, with a similar conversation with God, uh, that I might have the good sense to respond much like Job does here. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. 
As Christopher Ashe puts it, Job makes his declaration, namely that he will make no further declarations. And there's a lesson there for us. And I want to keep wading through the text here this morning, but I want to pause to make sure we don't miss the application for ourselves here. Some of you will remember that I mentioned at the outset of this sermon series that my aim as your pastor, when I preach through a book like this, my aim is to prepare you for the day of trial. We've talked about this at length, that even if you're not suffering now, even if everything is, as they say, hunky-dory, everything's going great for you now, uh, be warned. Suffering lies ahead for each of you, for you and for me. Our day of trial, if it's not here now, it lies ahead. And that's okay because part of my job is to prepare you for that. Prepare you for the day of trial so that you're not caught off guard. So that you're not surprised, that you're not shocked. And I want to prepare you in such a way that you not only are able to cope with difficulties, you're not only able to endure difficulties, but I want to prepare you in such a way that when the day of trial comes, your instinctive response is to worship God. That when hardship comes your way, your great intention and passion is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. But I understand, when we suffer, we naturally want answers. When we suffer, we naturally want an explanation for why we are going through what we are. And because God is all-knowing, He knows why you're going through it. Because God is all-powerful, He has the ability to lift this burden. It is reasonable on one level... To think that we might hear from him some explanation. In fact, it might be precisely because we believe God governs carefully that we want an answer. Because nothing is left to chance, because nothing is random, because God governs so carefully, it's for that reason we want to hear why. It's because we believe that God does all things well that we want to hear from him. And yet, if the book of Job teaches us anything, if these four chapters teach us anything, it is this. We do not need the answers we are seeking. We do not need an explanation for every hardship. We do not need to know why terrible things have happened. It is enough... If God meets with us, it is enough if God shows up and shows himself kind and gracious to us. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it, and C.S. Lewis puts everything perhaps in a better way than I ever could. Uh, He has a wonderful book called The Problem of Pain. And, and C.S. Lewis gives this excellent quote. And I think I've, this one's going up. Lewis says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, 
questions die away, what other answer would suffice? You don't need an explanation. You don't need those other answers. You just need to know that God is the answer. That Him being in your life, that Him animating your very being, that's the answer. So even amid the worst of hardships, you can be satisfied by the presence of God. Biblical commentator Christopher Ashe, he does a great job summarizing four chapters. Christopher Ashe takes the four chapter speech of God and he rolls it into a couple sentences, but they're, they're very helpful. This is what he says, and he's speaking for God here. I have made no mistake. I know exactly what I am doing in your life and in every detail of the government of the world. My counsel is perfect. I have got nothing wrong. This is a great consolation for us when we suffer. That God doesn't get anything wrong. There are no missteps. There's no point in heaven where God says, Oops, I missed something. His counsel is perfect. Your suffering, your pain, the bad things that have happened in your life are not God's way of punishing you. This is so important. The bad things that have happened in your life are not God's way of punishing you. Nor is your suffering random. It's not by chance. Your pain is not beyond God's ability to control. Your suffering is not beyond God's ability to limit. Probably one of the best preachers on this subject is 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon died rather young. I think he was in his mid to late 50s when he died. Spurgeon suffered terribly from depression. And, and, and Spurgeon suffered in many other physical ways as well. This is how Spurgeon brings his theology to bear on what he's going through. And I don't have these up on the screen, so if you're taking notes, I'll, I'll read slowly. Spurgeon says, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sends me, that the bitter cup was never filled by His hand, that my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement, of their weight and quantity. Spurgeon goes on to say, If our great pains were not regulated by divine wisdom, we might be alarmed by them. But now we need not be afraid. He who made no mistakes in balancing the clouds and meeting out the heavens commits no errors in measuring out the ingredients which compose the medicine of our souls. 
we may be in a real mess at the moment. It may be the case that you're having difficulty seeing the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. It may be that your circumstances are so challenging that you are struggling to see the silver lining. But again, if Job teaches us anything, it is that our most urgent task when we suffer is to trust in God. Our most urgent, our most pressing need, our most pressing task when we're suffering is to trust God. God is big enough. God is powerful enough to turn the bad things that have happened to you into good things. And this is huge. This is a massive biblical principle. That of the bad things that have happened to you in your life, God has the ability to manage and control and transform those bad things and make them become good things. How do I know this? Well, let me jump to chapter 40. Of all the metaphors that God uses in his speech, in his response to Job, my favorite metaphor, or at least the one that lingers with me the most, is in chapter 40, verse 9, where God asks Job, Have you an arm like God? That's an interesting thing to ask. Of all the things he might say to Job, he says, have you an arm like God? Job, do you have an arm like me? Well, let's think this through. From ancient times to even today, the arm, the human arm, has been a primary indicator of what? A person's strength. I remember, and it's, it's kind of silly to think back on these things many years later, but I remember when I began weightlifting with my friends as a teenager. And it was a new thing because you weren't allowed to lift weights when you were a child and you were growing. Your parents didn't want you doing it. When you're a teenager and you're playing sports, you lifted weights. And, and I remember how silly it would get. I'd be lifting weights with my friends and then afterwards we'd rip our shirts off and we'd stand in front of the mirror and we'd flex our muscles and then we would put our arms side by side and we, we would see with the biggest bicep. And the reason we did this was simple. We, we thought whoever had the biggest bicep, that was the strongest person. And if you weren't happy with how you fared in that mirror comparison, we had one other test was the good old arm wrestle. And if, if you didn't do well in the bicep contest in the mirror, you put your elbow down on the table and you challenged your friend to an arm wrestle. And whoever would win the arm wrestle tourney, that person was the strongest. It's about right on time this morning. Well, those days have long passed. And I am mindful now in my 40s of the diminishing strength of my arms. Yes, I, Allie asked me to carry the groceries in from the car the other day. And I can tell you that my arms were aching as I lifted these you know, big things from the car into the house. My arm strength isn't what it used to be. 
You know, one of the things that I dread seeing in my house is when I enter the kitchen, there's an empty five-gallon con- container for the water. Because that's Allie's way of saying, Bryn, go get a full five-gallon container of water. And my arms just can't take it anymore. I'm, I'm not uh, the strong person I, I once imagined myself to be anyway. My arms have limited strength. And similarly, as we draw out the metaphor, not only do my arms have limited strength, but I have a very limited capacity to govern the circumstances of my life. I'd like to think I'm in control of a lot, but when I take careful inventory of my life, there is so little that we can control. Most of it is beyond me. There is so much in my life that I cannot lift. What about you? Do you find there are things in your life that you cannot control? People that you cannot change? Circumstances that you cannot alter? Do you find that there are things in your life that you do not have the strength to lift on your own? But then along comes God. Along comes God. And he asks, do you have an arm like me? Do you have an arm like me? And I know that's anthropomorphic language. I know that God really doesn't have actual arms with which to do things. But God employs these common, human, familiar images to help us. And throughout the Old Testament, the most commonly used metaphor for God's strength is His arm. It's His arm. He uses that image to describe how He redeems Israel. He uses that image to describe how He constantly delivers His people. Let me give a few examples. Psalm 44. The psalmist confesses, It was not by their sword that they had won the land, nor did their arm bring the victory. It was your right hand, it was your arm that brought victory. Isaiah 51, the future assistance of the Lord is promised and he declares, My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. You often hear me quote Romans 8.28, and I hope you've committed this to memory, or at least a paraphrase of it. And we know that in all things, God works for good of those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. In all things, in all things, good and bad, God works for the good of those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. Here's the thing. If God's arm is not strong, then that's just, that's just a promise of kind intentions. If God's arm is not sufficiently strong to help you in your situation, then He's just being nice in Romans 8.28. If God's arm is not strong, you can have no assurance that everything will be okay in the end. You say, oh, everything will work out fine in the end. Only if God's arm is strong. 
Thankfully, the Bible is replete. The Bible is filled with accounts that testify to the infinite strength of God's arm. And if you want to know the infinite strength of God's arm, you read Job chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, and you read it all, you say, this, this one is strong. There's nothing too difficult for him. But friends, I don't simply want you to know that God is strong. What I want to leave you here with today is this. God's arm is strong for you. On your behalf, He exercises His strength. God is not simply strong. He's not some being flexing in the heavenly cosmos. He's strong for you. I know you might be struggling. I know some of you are struggling. I know some of you are languishing in some challenging circumstances. You might be coming to grips with the reality that you cannot change these circumstances. That's because you don't have an arm like God. You don't have an arm like God, but you can have God's arm working for you. You don't need answers. You don't need explanations as much as you need God. You need God's arm working for you. He is your answer. He is the answer. Put your hope in the God who is strong. Amen.